0: Do you ever find yourself frustrated with yourself and your laziness? Maybe there's a sin issue that you've been thinking about, dealing with it for a while, or a step of holiness that you know you should be pursuing, but you have just put it off because you feel you can do it later. Or maybe you try to uh, purge that sin that keeps plaguing you, or become more holy And you face immediate opposition and as a result you float back into the pool of complacency from where you were trying to leave. And you read God's Word and you hear it preached and you know that God is leading you to take that first step or that next step, but you still haven't done it. What will it take to get you in gear? What will it take to get you into gear with regard to knowing what you no, God wants you to do. What will it take? Is God going to talk to us from the skies? Well, not audibly, and certainly not with written messages in the clouds. Is God going to speak to us with a still, small voice? No, God doesn't speak to us in those ways anymore. Is God going to bring a crisis or a catastrophe to get us moving in the right direction? He could, possibly. Possibly but not usually. The way that God moves us to take that step forward toward holiness or that step toward removal of sin is that He stirs our hearts through the proclamation of His Word. Let me remind you of a quotation from uh, our study in the book of Ezra or, or that I mentioned during that study from missionary David Hassaflouk. He says, "...when God stirs your spirit, He also loosens your tongue rattles your routine, and gets you up off the couch. Spiritual movement begins with God. All work for God is initiated by God. And when He begins that work in you, when He stirs your heart, when He causes you to see your sin, or to see that that need to take the step of obedience, He expects you to follow Him. He expects you to follow through. Nehemiah is God's man for bringing about good for the people of Israel. God has stirred up the people of Israel to go back to Jerusalem in the book of Ezra. And now God stirs up Nehemiah to lead a group back to do something similar. To bring about this reformation, this physical reformation, physical rebuilding, and then also spiritual reformation reformation of the people. And that's what the book of Nehemiah is all about. We have come to chapter 2 in Nehemiah. So if you haven't turned there, let me invite you to do that because you will be helped by following along in the text of Scripture as I read it and as I explain it to you. Nehemiah chapter 2. Let me read it for us this morning. This is the word of God. And it came about in the month Nisan in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, Lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there's no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation which we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we His servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. God here is accomplishing good for His people by stirring up the hearts of His people and their leaders. And this is a similar theme that we have seen running throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that God is working behind the scenes to stir up the hearts of the people to cause them to do God's work. In verses 1-3, through we see Nehemiah's distressing. Nehemiah's distressing. In the first chapter, we saw that Nehemiah learned of the work at Jerusalem being incomplete. His brother had come back from a trip to Jerusalem and told him about what the situation was, that the walls were burned down and that they were defenseless. And so Nehemiah was compelled to mourn, weep, and pray to God, if you remember from last week. And this sorrow and prayer went on for weeks. Now we come to chapter 2. The year is 445 B.C. and four months have passed since Nehemiah has learned of the news of Israel's failure. And he's about to get the opportunity that he's been praying about. The opportunity that he's been praying about is to make a request before the king of Persia the end of verse 11, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He's praying that he would get an opportunity to speak to the king and that he would be granted what he asks. So four months have passed since he learned of that initial news. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. We mentioned he's an important confidant, a a um, advisor very likely to the king. he is very trustworthy had to be in order to be in that position. And in verse one, Nehemiah is in the presence of his king, but he's has a saddened look on his face. Now this doesn't mean, Uh, that this is the first time that he's been sad, four months after he heard the news. Remember, right when he heard the news, he went into mourning. Chapter 1 is a record of that, of that initial sadness. And I think that sadness went on for four months. So there are a few possibilities of what's happening here in verse 1 of chapter 2. It could be that Nehemiah hadn't seen the king in a while. So that's why the king didn't see him sad. He was sad the whole four months. The king didn't see him during that time. Maybe the king was away. But more likely, it was that Nehemiah had composed himself before the king. He was sad when he was away from the king, but when he was before the king, he had a job to do. So he put on a stoic face and made sure that he did his job properly. But this time was different. It was on this day that his grief could not be hidden. Because the king notices, says, verse 2, so the king said to me, "Why is your face sad, though you are not sick?" There's nothing but this has to be nothing but sadness of heart, and I was very much afraid. Nehemiah has now found himself in a difficult spot. King was not a man who wanted to be surrounded by people who were sullen and sulking in their problems. He wanted to be around positive people, joyful people, people who had solutions, not problems. And Nehemiah is now exposed as someone who's sad over something very significant. And so at the end of verse 2, he is fearful. He's about to share why he is sad. And he doesn't want the king to think that he is disloyal. And that's why he responds in the way that he does in verse 3. He said, let the king live forever. So he's saying, listen, I'm not disloyal to you. I, I think that you're a good king and I want to serve you. Let the king live forever. I'm not trying to oppose you. He says in verse 3, Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Think about how fearful of a situation Nehemiah must be in. He's asking a Persian king to go back for him, that is Nehemiah, to go back to the land that was subjugated, uh, currently under the rule of Persia. He's asking to go back to that city and fortify the city against empirical rule, effectively. And so for Nehemiah to make that request, you could see how the king could take it in the wrong way, thinking, you're being disloyal to me. And to add another element of risk to the situation, Judah was in a strategically important spot geographically. It was in a critical spot because it created the perfect buffer zone between Egypt, Persia's nemesis, and Persia. So if Persia had control of Judah, where Jerusalem is, then, then they would have a good buffer zone between them and Egypt. But if it, Egypt took that place back, as you remember, the, the, the battle over the centuries was, was for this land. Back and forth. Persia did not want to lose control of this land. So, that's why he responds in the way that he does. And when he responds, he doesn't give the the location of his place of concern. Did you notice that in verse 3? He doesn't say, let me go back to Judah. He says instead, the place where my fathers were buried. That's where I want to go back. So, he's appealing to the king on the basis of his compassion first. And if the king doesn't know, he lives in Judah already. Then he's going to find out pretty soon. So Nehemiah is distressing, verses 1 through 3. Secondly, we see Nehemiah is requesting in verses 4 through 8. Nehemiah is requesting. He requests of the king uh, something, that, that is, to go back to Judah. We'll see that in verses 5 through 8. But at the end of verse 4, we see that before he requests something of the king, he first makes a request to God. Look at verse 4. Then the king said to me, Well, then what would you request? And before he answers in verse 5, he says this, I prayed to the God of heaven. Have you ever found yourself in a similar situation with with your boss or with another person prior to an important conversation? One that you have been thinking about for months. And now you're about to have that conversation or maybe before a test, a very big test that you've been preparing for. And you find yourself fearful of the potential outcome. And as a result, you pray this brief, silent prayer to God. That's Nehemiah right here. He's about to have an important conversation with the king that he's been anticipating for four months. And he prays to God quickly. And I think we should learn from Nehemiah here. God is ready to listen at any time. And our dependence on Him prior to the commem- commencement of conflict shows our trust in Him. That we recognize this could be a serious situation if it go- turns out badly. So we depend on You, God. And I think God appreciates that. But I think we ought, ought to uh, think about this brief prayer that Nehemiah makes in light of the context of what's going on in chapters 1 and 2. This is not the only prayer that Nehemiah prays to God, is it? He's been praying for four months. It started in chapter 1 when he first heard of the news. And he's been praying apparently night and day. Um, I was trying to find the, the text where it shows that, but can't find it right now. But, but I think Nehemiah is praying continually for this request. And now, just before it happens, the opportunity is staring him square in the face. And he briefly prays to God. This is not the only prayer that he makes. If we wait till this big conflict comes and we pray to God, that's our only prayer that says something about our faith. What we've been depending on all along. See, for Nehemiah, this was kind of like an iceberg. What you can see above the water, this brief prayer, we see that. But, but actually behind that is all of this prayer that he's been, been praying for so long. So I think we should learn from this. This should not be the only time that we pray. We should pray right before conflict comes. We know it's it's potentially huge. But we should pray long before that as well. His request is found in verses 5-8. through eight. His request to the king. The first part of his request is found in verse 5. He tells the king, of the location of his homeland, and and then makes his three-part request. The first part is for the king to grant him permission to go. So, you know, I'm under your service. I can't just get up and leave whenever I want. So I first need permission to go back to my homeland to rebuild the walls of the city. That's the first part of his request. The second part of the request is found in verse 6. When the king responds by saying, how long is this going to be? And he tells him a definite time. Verse 7... If it please the king, let letters be given me for for the governors of the provinces beyond the river. This is this trans-Euphrates area that we've been seeing in the book of Ezra as well. The, these people are, are generally opposed to the people of Judah, and so you need safe passage through there, but you also need um, uh, permission to, to be able to pass through their region. Otherwise, they could just say, no, you're not coming this way, and then, uh, then Nehemiah is going to be in, in much deeper trouble. And so the king apparently it grants him this second request as well. The third request is found in verse 8, and it is materials for rebuilding the walls. So when I get there, I'm asking that for permission to go first, then safe passage second, and then also would you, would you, send, would you give me enough um, wood to be able to rebuild these walls and also the place where I'm going to live? So that's what he asks for from the king. Now, Nehemiah is going to be gone for 12 years when it when it's all said and done. But I don't think he's asking for that period of time in verse six. I I think he does give him a definite period of time. He doesn't say, "Hey, I'm going to be gone for 12 years. See you later." I think he probably says, "This is a survey trip, so can I go and see how things are, what needs to be done, and I'll come back and report to you." And I think he probably got permission. Following that, that's not recorded. So Nehemiah's distressing. Nehemiah's requesting. Thirdly, Nehemiah's blessing. Nehemiah's blessing at the end of verse 8. After he asked for these three requests, the king, it says in verse 8, the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. So here he has permission from the king. He has the safe passage, the letter, so that you have safe passage, and the materials for the rebuilding of the walls. But he recognizes, Nehemiah does, that even though God didn't come and whisper to him or tell him audibly that it was him, he recognizes that all of this prayer that he's been praying has been answered by God when the, this king responds. Because the good hand of my God was on me, that's why the king answered properly or, or, or affirmatively. So when we pray for God to answer a specific prayer, and then that specific prayer is answered then we should recognize that that's an answer from God even if it was a request that we made of someone that's an authority over us for example so if we had asked somebody from the government for, for permission to do something or somebody from our company for permission to do something or someone in our family or whatever and we had been praying about that and the person answers that also means that God is answering you see this is Nehemiah. He recognizes that it's not just some, oh, this is coincidental. This just happened to, to, to be this way. Nehemiah recognizes, I've been praying for four months and I asked the king this. He re, he granted it, but it's only because God granted what I had been asking from him. Nehemiah's blessing. Fourthly, in verses 9 through 10, we see Nehemiah's traversing or his traveling after receiving permission by the king, Nehemiah sets out on his trip. And notice how he is able to travel. The end of verse 9 says, Now the king had sent me, not just with a letter. That's all he asked for was a letter. Can I have a letter that tells, gives me permission? But the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. And this is significant. I mean, just picture Nehemiah traveling through the trans-Euphrates area with the king's army or a portion of the king's army. And then arriving into the city of Jerusalem with the king's armed guard. These men brought more than protection for Nehemiah, didn't they? Also brought authorization from the king. That Nehemiah is not just coming here on a whim saying, you know, I've I got a good idea. I'd like to change some things around here. I've already got permission from the king, friends. It would be like you arriving at the capitol building in Lansing in a presidential motorcade, that is, the President of the United States. He had allowed his motorcade to go, to, to take you directly to the State Capitol building in Lansing. And as you get out of that limousine, everyone who saw you would know that you're arriving on official business of the President. You have his seal of approval on what you're coming to do, because he's given you his, his uh, guard, effectively. And the opponents of the Jews picked up on this. Verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. This Jewish revival would cause problem for the locals. Now a Jew comes from Babylon with permission from the Persian king to rebuild the walls, and so this is going to be a major problem for these opponents. Sanballat and Tobiah. In verses 11 through 16, we see Nehemiah's assessing. Nehemiah's assessing. Certainly the people had to wonder why Nehemiah was there. After all, he received permission from the king to come. But he didn't tell them, did he? Verse 11, I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, and the rest who did the work. I didn't tell anybody what I was coming to do. Very enigmatic that he arrives in the city with the king's permission, and for three days, no one knows why he's there. He gives no clue as to what his long term plans are because he still needs to fully assess the situation and develop a plan and then tell the people. He doesn't want them all to you know go into some kind of unnecessary panic, and so he delays in telling them the whole plan. So before he makes this plan, he appeals to the Jews and, and the appeal to the Jews to help him, he first has to assess, to assess the situation. And so what he does and is at night in verses 12-15, through 15, he, he takes a ride on his horse with a few men around the city walls. And so if you have a map in the back of your Bible of the city of Jerusalem, you'll see the walls in the shape of kind of like a shield almost with a point at the bottom. At the bottom of that is where the refuse gate is, which we talked about, which is probably where Gehenna was. This just burning trash and refuse that was always uh, a burning. And then, so all these gates are around the outside of the city. And he's going around and seeing all the destruction the walls torn down, half built, or, or completely burned down to the ground. As he makes his way around, he gets back to where he starts in verse 15. And he assesses the, situa- the situation. Verses 17 and 18, we see Nehemiah's enlisting. Nehemiah's enlisting. Now he's arrived in the city. He's assessed the situation. He's made his plan, and now he's going to recruit helpers. We're going to see what kind of people are willing to help me in this work. So obviously they haven't gotten up. Uh, they haven't gotten up the energy or the courage. To be able to to start this work back up and finish this job. So Nehemiah is going to try to recruit workers here in verse 17. I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in. That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And then notice he attributes the success that he's had so far to the king's favor and to God. Verse 18. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. So he, he wants them to know, listen, you, you saw that big armed guard that I came in with? That means that I came on behalf of the king. But I also want you to I want, want you to know, I want to tell you that I come on behalf of God, that this is God's good hand that's at work in me. And he's going to be working in you as well. And so I, I am calling... For you to be enlisted in this job, it's not going to be easy. We're going to face opposition. In fact, that's what we see in verses 19 and 20. Nehemiah is resisting. Nehemiah is resisting. It's often true that when believers set out to do God's work, that they are met with opposition. When believers are set out, when they set out to take that step that we talked about at the beginning. I want to take that step toward holiness. I want to take that step to purge that sin that we are met with opposition. Have you found that to be the case for yourself? That's the case here with Nehemiah. Sanbella and Tobiah heard of what they were going to do. Now they, it wasn't just that they heard he was coming. Now they know what he's doing. And notice what they say to him in verse 19. At the end of the verse it says, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? This is a similar claim that's lobbed at Ezra, or at the uh, uh, probably is um, revable there in Ezra chapter four verse twelve. Are, are you rebelling against the king? You are you going against the king in order to set up the city? Well, that's the only reason someone would build walls is to defy the king. But Nehemiah is saying, listen, I. I have permission from Artaxerxes and you already know that because you saw me come in with the armed guard and so it's amazing here that Nehemiah doesn't say anything about the king's authorization. See, their claim against him is you are rebelling against the king. And we would think the response would be I have authorization from the king. But see, Nehemiah knew that they knew they already knew that. And so here's his response in verse 20. He's not appealing to the authorization from King Artaxerxes. He says, I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we His servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Instead of appealing to the authority that they would revere, Artaxerxes, he he appeals to the highest authority, God Himself. He says, listen, God's going to give us success and what we're going to do because this is God's work. God's the one who who put it in my heart who stirred my heart to do this. I'm following God here and he's going to give us success. And he also denies these two men any claim that they might think they have to the land. Notice the end of the verse. You have no portion, right, or memorial. You have no legal claim, no moral claim, no historical claim. This is not your land. This belongs to God and the people that He has chosen. What can God do through a person who is humble, willing to trust Him, and who works hard at planning, and who is faced with opposition? What can God do through such a person? This is the kind of man that Nehemiah is. And Nehemiah can be that way because of the God that he serves. He serves a faithful God. He serves a God who is true to his promises and who compels his people to go and work. Nehemiah can, can be used of God because he serves a faithful God. And we serve that same God. God desires to use you for his service. So you need to be ready to serve him, willing to serve him, and to come to him humbly and be willing to work hard at planning for the sake of God, even in the face, like Nehemiah, of fierce opposition. And this initial opposition doesn't seem like a whole lot. You know, Tobiah and Sanballat saying, you're rebelling against the king. It gets much worse. To the point where we're going to see in the next couple chapters that the people who are rebuilding have to have a sword along with their trowel, their, their, their tool and there's in one hand and their sword in the other hand. And uh, also in addition to that, we're going to see that there's not just people who are rebuilding. There's actually guards, guard posts set up at all of the most dangerous spots. So it's like half the people are working and the other half of the people are guarding the walls against the opposition. In addition to that, there's all sorts of um, uh, persecution that comes by way of reproach that may not come physically. And so they're going to have to combat that as well. Nehemiah serves as a great example for us of a man who takes initiative. But the story of this book is not really about Nehemiah and his great leadership skills. We can learn much from that, as I mentioned last week. But it's a story of God's Faithfulness that God is consistently and unendingly working behind the scenes in the hearts of believers and pagans even to bring about exactly what He wants. We saw that God worked even through the pagan kings in Ezra. He did it in King Artaxer- Ar- Artaxerxes here. God works in the hearts of people to accomplish exactly what He wants, the good of His people. And while in other parts of Old Testament history, God works in miraculous ways to get people into motion to get them in a position to serve him, showing these great signs from the heavens or swallowing you know, the defiant ones up in the earth. Here in Nehemiah we can relate a lot better than we can relate in other parts of the Old Testament because God here in Nehemiah is doing nothing miraculous. In other words, there's no gravity defying, time altering, space shifting, mind blowing activities going on here, is there? God is simply putting desires into the hearts of people and giving them strength, spiritual strength, to finish. And the reason we can relate is because that's how God works in His church today. None of us have the, the power to heal a lame person. Wouldn't you like to do that next time you're witnessing to someone? Just, hey, I brought someone along here. This, this person has been lame for 40 years, but I want to show you that I believe in Christ and that my Christ is real. So watch this. Get up and walk by the authority that I have in Christ. Get up and walk. Wouldn't that really help us in our witnessing? But that's not how it works, is it? God doesn't give us that kind of power. We don't have the ability to give sight to the blind or to forgive sin. We might think that those kinds of things lend credibility to the message that we have and the demands that we're making. Listen, you need to repent and believe. Maybe we need some miracles to help us. But God instead has given us the gift of faith to believe that He will accomplish what He wants through the ordinary means of a faithful and faith-filled life coupled with an unashamed uh, uh, an unashamed belief in the Gospel. In our job... Is not to go out there looking for miracles, showing you know, proving that God exists or anything like that. Our job is to take God at His word, to pray, to work, to plan, and then to take whatever step, steps that He asks of us. So, if you're a Christian, let me encourage you to ask God a simple question today: God, what is one thing that You require of me today? What do You require of me? Today? Is there something that, that you are calling me to do that I have just been ignoring? What are you requiring of me today? What do I need to do to take steps to get to that place that you're calling me to? If you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to consider the position that you're in. You've been listening today, but for you, the Bible the Bible says that it is impossible for you to please God. This challenge today comes from a book written by a believer, Nehemiah, two believers. But if you've not believed in Jesus Christ, you can't be in a position to work for God. Those works will not amount to your being accepted before God. The Bible teaches us that every single one of us, myself included, was born into this world opposed to God. That we were God's enemies and under His wrath. There are many great problems in the world, but there is no greater problem that you and I face than the problem of God's wrath. God is filled with wrath over our sin. Our sin is an offense to Him and it must be paid for. Do you know that? Do you know that your sin separates you from God? The Bible teaches us that we are all sinners, but it doesn't stop there, does it? God tells us that He has also provided a means of escape from His eternal wrath and that is through the payment of Jesus Christ. You see, we all deserve to die because of our sin, To die eternally, but Jesus did nothing deserving of death. And yet God, Isaiah 53 says, He was pleased to crush His Son because through that Son, through our Savior, the wrath of God would be satisfied. So that all who look to Jesus, like the, the people of Israel, look to the, the bronze serpent. All who look to Jesus and trust in Him alone as the only means of salvation will be saved. That's why Romans ten nine and 10 tell us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. Now, you might be thinking, as a non-Christian today, if if I'm under the wrath of God, then how come it doesn't feel like it? Maybe you have lived a... A pretty conflict free life. And you don't see that really changing anytime soon. The sky is not falling. Nothing's going to happen to me. All things are going to remain as they are. Let me assure you, on the authority of the Word of God, that things will not always remain like they are. Those who do not turn in faith to Jesus Christ will be destroyed by God and judged forever in hell. Judgment is coming. And you and I need to make sure that we are ready. And praise God that He has made clear to us how we can be ready. And if you're not sure what it means to trust in Jesus alone for your salvation from God's wrath, then please talk to me this week. Or another way to make sure that you'll be accepted by God is is just by studying through one of the Gospels. And we are doing that on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock in the room at the back of this building. And there's... More information that you can get on our website or grab a postcard on your way out. It reads, One Life, What Is It All About? And we're, we're studying through the Gospel of Mark over the next five weeks. For you, Christian, I just want to encourage you. What What is one thing, God, that you require of me? Ask that question today. What What is God impressing upon your heart? That's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen as you hear the Word of God preach, as you read it for yourself, and then you respond to it by saying, God, show me. That's how God stirs hearts today. And when God stirs hearts, it causes us to shake up our routines and to get up off of our couch and serve Him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that You are constantly working for the good of Your people. Uh, We know that You work all things together for good, for those who love You and those who are called according to uh, to Your purpose. And the greatest good that You could possibly bring to us is conformity to Your Son, as Paul says in the next verse. And so we pray that You would conform us into His image. Help us not to resist the the leading of the Spirit as He is pointing out sins that we need to remove and we need to eliminate from our lives. We need to set them aside so that we can run the race with patience and that we can uh, fix our eyes on Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, He is our example who, who ran with the hope and the confidence that You would finally reward Him even though He walked through a life of suffering and great reproach. Lord, we we suffer reproach for taking steps of righteousness as well. And we want to be vindicated one day. We know that we will be in the next life when You show this all to be worth it. And so we put our confidence in You and in that promise. Help us now and in the meantime to, to be able to see where You are stirring our hearts and to be willing to shake up our routines and change our schedules and get up off our couch so that we can serve You. We pray for Your help. In Jesus' name.